Remain standing for our third lesson in sermon text, again from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Give your ear to God's holy word. Peter continued, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as any had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are thankful for the spirit that you have given us 
to indwell us and to illuminate our minds and hearts. We pray that he would do that now, that he would help us to understand your word and to see more of your son, that we might be conformed into his image. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Famous Anglican pastor and preacher named John Stott, some of you know about. John Stott said that no self-centered or self-contained church, that is, a church that is absorbed in its own parochial affairs, can claim to be filled with the Spirit. It's a striking statement that he made. I'll read it again. He says, no self-centered or self-contained church can claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Last week, as we considered the first half of Acts chapter 2, we talked about the meaning of Pentecost, that it was the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and to the rest of the world, primarily through the filling of His people with the Holy Spirit. Luke tips us off to that fact uh, by starting the chapter by saying that all these events that we read about took place when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And he says the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the people mocked them for being filled with new wine. And then Peter stands up and says, no, this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. He's tipping us off that the filling of the Spirit and the fulfillment of all of these promises is a major theme in the chapter. But you'll also remember from last week that we talked about how the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles in order for them to bear witness to Christ. As it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the program statement for the book of Acts. As you read throughout the rest of the, the book, it follows that trajectory from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it is about the apostles bearing witness to the risen Christ through the power of the Spirit. Some have said that the Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling theme. And this theme is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness and the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, then, is a missionary spirit. And so a Spirit-filled church is therefore a missionary church. That does not mean that every member in a, in a spirit-filled church must evangelize in a foreign land or that everyone in a spirit-filled church must preach on a street corner or hand out gospel tracts. But it does mean that in addition to all of the benefits that we talked about last week, that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a people so that we might bear witness to the ascended Lord Jesus. That's why one of the reasons why we exist as a church here in Springfield. It's one of the reasons God has given you, has given us the Holy Spirit. It does mean that in addition to knowing the meaning of Pentecost and what a Spirit-filled church is, that we also need to know what a Spirit-filled witness is and what it looks like and how we might engage in it. And so I think that the book of Acts, in chapter 2 in particular, shows us that the witness that we are to aim for as a church is this. It's one in which the ascended Lord Jesus 
calls people to Himself through the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the Gospel and the Spirit-empowered fellowship of the church. Again, for those of you that do outlines, that's, that's the outline for this week. What is a Spirit-filled witness? It's one in which the Lord Jesus calls people to Himself through the proclamation of the Gospel and the Spirit-filled fellowship of the church. And I say that a Spirit-filled witness is the activity of Jesus because the book of Acts begins with Luke telling Theophilus about his, his first volume, the, the Gospel of Luke, saying um, that he wrote to him about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. He says in Acts 1.1, the former account, that's the Gospel of Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, with the implication being that the book of Acts is the continuing of all that Jesus did and taught. And yet in the very first chapter, as we just read in verse 8, Jesus tells the apostles that when the Spirit comes upon them, they will be witnesses to the other utter ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And so, Acts then is Jesus' activity in and through his people, the church. In fact, the chapter 2 that we just read ends um, with after all of the preaching and all the recounting of the works that the early church did, it ends with this statement in verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Peter preached, the people lived, they gave their goods, and yet it was the Lord who added to the church daily. And it's not an insignificant point. I bring it up because anytime you start talking about missions or evangelism or the need to witness and share the gospel and and be a witness, um, it's easy to fall into one of two ditches, either becoming very uh, man-centered and programmatic or becoming very, very passive. On the other hand, on one hand, it can seem like bearing effective witness is all about what you say and do. As corporately as a church, it can become like a methodology or churches can begin to think of evangelistic endeavors kind of like advertising. But a church is not a, not a business and we have very different aims and purposes. That's not to say that there's no, no place for things like uh, tools or summaries to help you learn how to share the gospel or programs, but it's very easy to fall into the ditch of relying on these programs as if, if we simply follow the steps, then whether God moves or not, or whether the Spirit is present or not, then we are making disciples, we are, we are bearing witness to Jesus, and that's, that's not true, that's not possible. On the other hand, knowing that the Lord is working, the other ditch to fall into is to become completely passive. And many of you know that famous story about William Carey when he's wanting to found a China Inland Mission. And, uh, and he was told, you know, young man, if, if God is going to uh, convert the heathen, he'll do it without you or I. That's, that's not true. That's not true either. Peter does have to get up and preach. We, in order for the nations to know about Jesus, as Paul says in Romans, a preacher must be sent. There is work for the church to do. But it is the Lord working by His Spirit in and through His people. It is Christ, the head of the church, who adds to His church. And He does use means, and He's made it perfectly clear in our chapter that the means that He uses by His Spirit are twofold. One is the proclamation, the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the Gospel. And the other 
of the Spirit-empowered fellowship in the life of the church. Let's turn and look at those now. The first one, Spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. That's the first half of our section here. It runs all the way from 22 to 39. As we pick the narrative back up, you'll remember that Peter began his sermon on Pentecost by explaining all of the phenomenon that the crowd was experiencing, that they had seen. The fire and the sound and the prophecies and the preaching and the speaking in foreign languages. And, and he did so by uh, referring to the prophet Joel. In the Old Testament, uh, the Jews reading the Old Testament knew that the Messianic age would include an outpouring of God's Spirit. They looked forward in the age to come for the Messiah to reign and for Him to pour out God's Spirit on His people. And Peter, in fact, tells them, this is what is happening right now. With the day of the Lord coming soon, they needed to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so now as he picks back up in verse 22, he turns and preaches Jesus to them as that very Lord who is coming in judgment and that very Lord upon whom we must all call upon to be saved. As we go through his sermon here in the second half of Acts 2, I want to point out to you that there's a few elements um, throughout his sermon that are remarkably consistent throughout the book of Acts. Give you a summary of how the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. Paul's sermon in Acts 13 uses some of the exact same texts and, and many or all of the same elements. As you walk through the book of Acts, you'll notice these things are present in gospel preaching. Okay, first... There's a recounting of the historical events surrounding Jesus. Namely, his divinely attested life, including his ministry and his miracles, and his death on the cross, and his divinely accomplished resurrection. So, a recounting of the historical events concerning Jesus. In verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Jesus' miracles gave evidence that he was accredited by God. This is consistent with all of the Old Testament prophets, that you knew that a prophet was from God if the power of God was working through him and if the prophecies that he gave came true. The working of miracles and the fulfillment of prophecy was how God's messengers have always been authenticated. And Jesus himself often urged the crowds that followed him to believe on him for the works' sakes, which is a a phrase he repeats throughout the Gospel of John. Believe on me for the sake of the works, even if you don't understand the message, even if you don't... um, even if what I'm saying is confusing to you now, you can see that the things that I'm doing are the things that the Messiah is going to do. Peter also presents Jesus' death as having been caused not only by the crowd, but primarily through the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In verse 23, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And just like we saw at the beginning, here again is the paradox of divine providence and human responsibility even though God 
foreordained and knew and planned that Jesus would go to the cross, it still did not absolve those who rejected Jesus and crucified him of their responsibility for having done so. And if you're reading this, you may be asking yourself, how can Peter charge this crowd assembled here with Jesus' crucifixion? Right, this may or may not be even the same crowd that was um, around seven, ten days before uh, when, or earlier when Jesus was crucified. It says that these are devout men from all over the world that have come into town for the feast. How can the crowd be responsible? Well, what he's charging them with is rejecting the Messiah. That Jesus is, that in solidarity with their leaders who had rejected the Messiah and put them to death, they likewise had rejected the Messiah. They were just going about their business, going to the temple, attending the festivals, going on as though Jesus had not done ministry over the last three years, proving and authenticating through his life that he, in fact, was the Messiah, and then going to the cross. And yet, here they were, rejecting, rejecting him and going about their days as if his ministry didn't matter. And I think it's important for us to note that because um, it, it's easy to pin responsibility like that on the crowd or on the leaders or on these people 2,000 years ago, and yet, rejecting the Messiah is a sin that we are all chargeable with before we come to the Lord, before we're given repentance and faith. Turning away from God and worshiping a substitute God is what every human heart does apart from repentance and faith in Christ. The rejection of Jesus is a sin that can be laid at the feet of every human before the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates them. So while God had planned for Jesus to die on the cross, those who rejected him are not thereby resolved of their responsibility. But it does show us the unfathomable riches of the wisdom of God, that he can take the very worst sin, the very worst thing that we could do to reject his son and to kill and crucify him and take that thing and use it to accomplish our redemption. Jesus died on the cross and he came back with forgiving love. And that shows us that there is no sin in the world that God cannot forgive if a heart is repentant. The resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus are at the very center of Peter's preaching. In this sermon, he refers to Psalm 16, 8 through 11 and Psalm 110 to show that the resurrection and the ascension of Christ were foretold. It was not possible for death to hold one who was sinless and who was the author of life himself. He references Psalm 16, beginning in verse 25, saying this, David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." The move that Peter makes there and is the same one that he makes in 
in Psalm 110 that he quotes later in verse 35. And it's this. The psalm as it's written cannot apply to the historical person, David. You see there in verse 27, the speaker in the psalm says, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, you will not leave my soul in the place of the dead, and you will not allow my body to rest, to stay in the grave. And Peter tells them, following in verse 29, 29 and following, let me speak freely to you, David, about David. We know that he died. We know that he was buried, and we can go and visit his grave today. This, what David wrote about, did not happen to him. And so even though David wrote um, typologically about a salvation that he received from the Lord, that he was given life from his enemies, that he was saved from his enemies, the, the fullest reading of this psalm can't apply to him. And so being a prophet and knowing that God had promised to him in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would have a kingdom that would never end and therefore he must never die, he wrote this psalm saying that the Holy One, the Christ, would rise from the dead. And he uses that to prove to the assembled crowd that Jesus is that Messiah that they are to look to. In verse 36 Peter gives the second element that's common to gospel preaching in the book of Acts. So the first one, the historical facts about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Verse 36 is the second common element. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The second element is a theological interpretation of the person of Jesus. So we have the works of Jesus in the first half, and here we have the person of Jesus. Peter proclaims that Jesus is Lord. Now what would have been amazing to that crowd that was gathered there in the book of Acts was that Peter is using the same word to refer to God as he is to Jesus. In verse 21, he says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, some of you may know that in uh, the Hebrew text of Joel, that word is, is Lord, is God's name. But that is not, is Yahweh. But that is not what a Jew in the first century would have said when he was reading this verse. He would have substituted, as we have here in our English Bibles, the word Lord. Out of reverence, the Jews did not speak God's name, but they, but they would say that God is the Lord. And so Peter tells everybody, you must call on the Lord to be saved. And then he turns around in verse 36 and says, let the house of Israel know that Jesus is the Lord. Some people think that the, that the church, the early church as time went on, developed this myth that Jesus was God. Jesus, in this reading, was a, a good philosopher and a wonderful teacher um, who died at, at the hands of the Romans in a tragic death. And then as time went on, his followers concocted greater and greater stories about him until they began worshiping as God and, and things kind of spiraled from there. But that's not true. The gospel accounts show us, and Peter's very first sermon in Acts shows us 
that the witness of the church has always been that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God with us. That's why his death is effective for us. The title Christ that he uses points to Jesus being the spirit-anointed mediator between God and man. He is God's chosen king through whom God will restore all things and through whom the blessings of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit in the new covenant are mediated. So we have the person and the work of Jesus. First two elements. The last one is a call, a summons to repent and receive forgiveness. That's verses 37 through 39. The crowd say, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's hard, it's hard to understand the horror that that crowd must have had as Peter moved from the life and ministry of Jesus as he stacked upon them a reference to the miracles which they themselves had seen that pointed to him being the Messiah to scriptural references that proved that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of being the Messiah to his statement that they were witnesses of his resurrection to that statement we read in verse 36 that Jesus is God incarnate. He is the Lord and he is the Christ. The horror of rejecting God and his Messiah lands on the crowd and they, it seems, even interrupted him to ask, is there any way to avoid the judgment that is coming? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized and they will receive the blessings of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the wonder of the gospel. We killed God's Messiah, and he came back in order to forgive us. As I said before, there is no sin on the earth that God will not forgive a heart for if they will repent and turn to the Lord. One commenter said, commentator said this about these verses. He said, quote, They had murdered God's Son, and he offered them the Spirit. They had thrown out God's own son out of the vineyard in the hope of inheriting it themselves and now he was inviting them to receive his spirit not just into their vineyard but into their hearts to be the earnest guarantee of an infinite and imperishable inheritance this is the message of the gospel for all of humanity for all of us as a church that we rejected god that we put jesus on the cross and jesus came back from the dead in order to offer us forgiveness and the presence of his spirit. The very thing that we thought would keep Jesus away has brought him closer to us by the spirit for those who repent and have faith in him. Thousands on that day did repent and they did receive. They received forgiveness. They received baptism. They received the Holy Spirit. They received Jesus as Lord and Christ. This is the message that we are to take to Springfield, to our friends, to our family, to our communities. This is the message that the Spirit inspires, that the Spirit empowers us to preach. It's often been said that Christianity 
is Christ. Peter's sermon at Pentecost shows us why this claim is made. Everything about what he says is centered on the person and the work of Jesus. So as we, as we read through that section, we might wonder why Luke gives so much space to it. It's important, it's glorious, it's good gospel truths, and the narrative would totally work without it. I don't know if you, if you noticed that. The narrative would totally work without this half of the sermon. If, if we were just reading verse 21, he's preaching about Joel. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then ver- skip to verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. He doesn't have to put this part of the sermon in here. And yet he devotes nearly the entire chapter to it. Why did he do that? Well, it's because this is the message that the Spirit inspires us to preach. The sheer amount of space that Luke devotes to the sermon shows us that this is the model of evangelistic witness in the church. That's why he's left it for us here to ponder. Christianity is different from every other religion and philosophy in the world and that is eminently personal, historical, and revelational rather than speculative. Instead of reasoning about God or the good life, Christianity is a witness, just as this sermon is here. It is a witness to the history, which is recorded in the scriptures, of what God has done and will do in Jesus. It doesn't mean that every evangelistic sermon or every evangelistic encounter must contain all of the elements that we went through in the order that we went through them. But it does mean that the message of our church, if we are to bear a spirit-filled witness in our communities, must be centered on the person and the work of Jesus. And if that seems very obvious to you, you forget how easy it is as a church or as families or as individuals it is to allow our focus in the Christian life to slip off of the gospel message. Many churches today center their evangelistic strategy not on the historical realities of Christ's death for sin and his current reign, but on, like we said before, on marketing, on methods, on the felt needs of non-Christians. And there's nothing wrong with meeting felt needs for other people. People came to Jesus all the time asking for healing or for help, and Jesus gave mercy often. But he was very careful to point out to people, as I said before, that the ministry that he did, in fact, pointed to his identity as the Messiah. He called them signs. He said, believe on me for the work's sakes. What works were, that, what works were those? Healing people, raising people from the dead, giving sight to the blind. Is that mercy for other people? Yes, absolutely. Should we have mercy on, on the homeless and on the destitute and on people who need help and are going through difficult situations? Yes, absolutely. But as a church, we cannot lose our focus on the historical realities of what God has done in and through the person of Jesus and what he is coming again to do. We have to be careful when we're talking to others about the Lord because Jesus may not always answer their felt need in the way that they want. He may not get rid of a sickness sometimes or he may not solve a very difficult problem. 
Many people do come to Christ because, because Christ does something for them by His Spirit. But the people who stay with Christ stay because they've come to believe in the Gospel and believe in Him. So the application for us, one of the applications is perhaps as a church or especially as individuals to shift our mindset when it comes to evangelistic conversations. It's easy to feel pressure and anxiety when you walk into a situation where you want to share the faith with somebody or you want to tell them something about Jesus. And it's very easy to get anxious because you're thinking about your family member, your non-believing family member, or your coworker, and, and it starts to grow, and you're like, how can I convince them? What, did, what, do they di- what if they disagree? Should I, do I preach at them? How, how does this work? What, what should I do? And what I want us to suggest to you is to re- reimagine, rethink of that conversation as simply helping people interpret the events in their life and in the world in light of Christ and in light of the scriptures. That's exactly what Peter does in this sermon. The crowd is coming together and they're having experiences. They see fire, they hear noises, they see people speaking in tongues. And what does Peter do? He interprets it for them in light of the historical reality of Jesus and the scriptures. He tells them, this is what you're experiencing and this is what Jesus did and and therefore this is what it means. And that takes the pressure off because at that point what you're doing is what Peter does. You're simply bearing witness. You're reasoning from the facts about Jesus and the Bible instead of trying to convince people facts about Jesus and the Bible. Does that make sense? It's amazing. Peter reasons from the resurrection. Jesus, here's a historical Fact, Jesus rose from the dead, and this is what it means for you and in your life. This is what you should do in light of that. He is not trying to convince the people that the resurrection happened. There's a place for that. But in your friends, your, your family, your non-believing co-workers, it's far easier to just bear witness about what the Scriptures say, about what Jesus has done. You really do live in a world where... God became a man and did miracles among us and proved that he loved us and he ministered to us and that he was the Messiah. You do live in a world where that man died for our sins and where he is alive from the dead and sitting at God's right hand and you live in a world where he will come again in order to judge the living and the dead. There are certain behaviors and truths that flow from that, but that is is true about reality. And it is so much easier to simply bear witness about what the Scriptures say than it is to try to reason people into the Scriptures. There is a place for that. There are great resources about the trustworthiness of the Scriptures and evidence for the resurrection and and so forth. And those are fine to use in their place. But as a church, as a people, our primary job as we're filled with the Spirit is to bear witness, to simply say what happened and what people are to do. In light about it. There's a second way that Christ bears witness through us. And that's by our spirit-empowered fellowship. That's verses 42 through 47. Peter says, sorry, Luke says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, 
and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and good, and divided them among all as any had need. And continuing with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, Pastor Sexton uh, preached a, a two-part, I believe it was a two-part series of sermons that go through each of these elements in the life of the early church, the breaking of bread and the fellowship and the prayers. Um, and so if you, if you want a really good treatment of each of those, uh, you can find them in, in the archives online. It's a really good uh, couple of sermons, and I suggest you listen to them. But that's not, not our point today, is to go through those Um, go through those elements exhaustively. What we're interested in looking at today is how the Spirit uses that communal life in order to bear witness. Again, this is one of the two places where it says the Lord added to the people. The first one was after Peter's preaching. The second one is after their life together. But very quickly, you'll just notice that the church in Jerusalem had fellowship with God by His Spirit living in them, through through their worship at the temple, their celebration of the Lord's Supper, communal prayers. That's 42 through 43. And we have fellowship with God in the same ways. They had fellowship with one another, eating in each other's homes with gladness and having common concern for one another's welfare, selling goods and possessions for others as the need arose. That's verses 44 through 46. And they also had a relationship with the wider community. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord was continually adding to them. In verse 47. So the Holy Spirit draws people into fellowship and into relationship. Some theologians in the past have described the Holy Spirit as the love that the Father has with the Son. That their fellowship and love is so personal and eternal that He is Himself a person, the eternal God. And so as God gives us the Spirit. He draws us into fellowship with one another. And as His fruit is worked out in our lives and in our hearts, our community also becomes attractive to those outside. I know many of us dislike the fact that our society is becoming, uh, it seems, more fractured, more isolated, more individualistic. Our neighbors don't know one another anymore. And even within a house, family members can become isolated from one another as we seek to uh, entertain ourselves, numb our minds. It can be easy to ignore one another with all of the information we have bombarding us day after day. But this, this fracturing, this isolation does allow the church an opportunity if we allow the Spirit to produce that joyful, joyful genuine fellowship that is centered on something larger than ourselves. Centered on something larger than a personal interest that a few of us shared. A joyful and genuine fellowship that is centered on the work of God in Christ and our salvation in Him. When the wider community thinks about our church, do they think about people who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and joyful fellowship with one another. 
you can really see in the passage how, how the Spirit works both of these things. That it is after the preaching that people are added. It's after the Spirit-filled communion with one another that people are added. I want, and I believe to some extent, our neighbors do think of us as people who are joyful, people who are committed to the Lord, and especially committed to the gospel. But as churches, as individuals, we can tend to major on one or the other. It's easy to think of families or churches where perhaps doctrine and teaching are are really, really high, uh, but the church is just kind of a place that you show up to once a week, and it really doesn't have much impact in a life, and that's not nearly as attractive. Or you might think of people who, um, you know, say doctrine divides. We don't, we don't need teaching. We don't need the, the doctrine of the apostles. We just need to be nice to one another. But it is commitment to the apostles' doctrine that produced the spirit-filled fellowship that they enjoyed. As a church, we need both. And I think, th- I think that God is working this in us by his spirit. I can think of things specifically like psalm sings, getting together to to sing and praise the Lord where there's joy and there's music. It's an outflowing of the Spirit. Or when we get together after a sermon series and, and we enjoy one another's fellowship and read an entire book of Scripture. Those are places where there's joyful fellowship and it's centered around the Lord. We need to have events like those more and more. But I'll encourage you to practice one other thing if you don't already, and that's regular hospitality and fellowship with one another. As you are eating meals with one another, praying and singing, having fellowship over the things of the Lord, whether we have psalm sings or um, book readings or we meet in each other's homes, as the Spirit works that warmth and that centeredness on the gospel, then you can begin to invite neighbors, invite friends, invite family members to come and see the joy that the Lord is working in us. The early Christians were known for their witness to the person and the work of Jesus and for being a joyful community that was devoted to good works. My prayer is that the Spirit continually works those in us. May God make us a people who bear witness to Jesus in both word and in deed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit. And we thank you that he has cleansed us and made us new and given us life with you. We thank you that he is working out your righteousness in us. And we thank you that he has given to us to bear witness to you in Springfield and surrounding communities and our homes and throughout the world. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to yield ourselves to you, that we might be effective witnesses for you. In Jesus' name, amen.